Good morning. My name is Spencer. I am one of the pastors here. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 20, uh, verses 4 through 6 today. We are walking through uh, the Ten Commandments. We're going one by one, and we're in the Second Commandment uh, today. That'll be on page 35 in your blue Bibles. Uh, you can follow along also on the screen. So uh, my family and I have owned two homes over the last seven years, and both of those homes were complete remodels that required a lot of work. And I've learned a couple things in completely redoing houses. The first is, is that I never want to move again, and that I never want to do another remodel. Uh, that was, that's an important lesson. We are staying until I die. The second uh, is I've, I've actually learned quite a bit in the process of doing some of these, these remodels. I've learned on the fly a little bit how to do these different projects in the house, uh, which, you know, I didn't, I learned a lot of things growing up, but there's a lot of things that I just rejected. Like my stepdad tried to show me how to do quite a few things, and I just said, you know, I, I appreciate what you're offering, uh, but one day I'm going to be an attorney, and I'll make lots of money. I'll pay people to do this, and that was a poor life choice based on the profession that I chose, because uh, I can barely pay anyone to do anything, so I've had to learn on the fly, which has been helpful. Like I've had to learn these different things, but there's been some, there's been some successes, and there's been some failures, and the greatest failure was the back porch at my last house. So uh, we converted a screen porch into a sunroom, which raised the flooring about a foot off the ground, which meant when you stepped into the backyard, you stepped about a foot down, which is dangerous. And I said, we, we need to make this kind of a back patio area. So I said, uh, you know what, let's do a concrete path. That'll be the patio that we do. And I never poured concrete before, but, uh, but I said, you know what, I think, I think this is doable. I got on YouTube, and I was like, oh, yeah, I got this. And I kind of just scanned through the process of looking at how to pour a concrete pad and just said, I got this. So I went to Lowe's and collected concrete materials, came back, and then started. And about halfway through, I realized that this is a huge mistake. Uh, that one does not simply just stumble upon the art of pouring concrete. There's a lot that goes into it. I think it's one point my wife came out and was kind of looking and was like, oh, no, this is, this is a disaster. When it was done, I looked at it and I was like, this, this is awful. This is, this is terrible. Like, this looks horrible. I don't know if you know this about concrete, but once you do it, like, it's done. Uh, you, don't, you don't just fix that. Like, it just, it's over. And uh, so I just was like, the, the only option, I'm not about to get a jackhammer and, and rip this thing up. So I just decked right over the top of it. And to this day, whoever owns that house right now, one day they're going to change those deck boards and they're going to pull them up and go, what is that monstrosity? Who did this? I did that. Like it's, <laughs> I had the right idea. Like I, I, that, that back porch was necessary, Right? It was, it was dangerous to not have that. It was going to look good. I had the right idea, but I did it poorly. I did it wrongly. And I've heard pastors and theologians describe the first and second commandment like this. That the first commandment is worshiping the right God. And that truth gets pulled down to the second commandment. And the second commandment is worshiping the right God rightly. 
So worshiping the right God, but not doing it wrongly. And that's what we're going to see as we walk through this today. We're going to be in the second commandment. We're going to see how the people were designed to worship God and God alone, like we talked through last week in the first commandment, but also to worship the one true God rightly. I'm going to read it, and then we'll pray, and then we'll walk through this together. Verse 4, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth, the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Let's pray, and then we'll walk through this together. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would continue to expose the scriptures and these commandments to our hearts. I pray that we would have hearts to receive your word so that we might see your truth and your commandments as good and that we might walk this out in faith and obedience and in repentance and ultimately delighting in who you are as our one true God. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so. Let me start at the beginning of this. He says in verse 4, you shall, not, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. So let's pause this. We're going to spend quite a bit of time. This phrasing is a broad condemnation of idolatry. Okay. It's a broad condemnation of idolatry, but as we're going to see as we walk through this, it's a little more complicated than it initially appears. There are two different main ways to violate this commandment. There's two types of idolatry condemnation that is happening here. The first is the one that we're most familiar with, and that is worshiping other gods through idols as a violation of this commandment. So it's building off the first commandment, that you shall have no other gods before me, in my presence, amongst my people in this land. You will have no other gods before me. And it's pulling down that truth in the second commandment to say, you won't worship foreign idols. My people will not do this. This condemns all idolatry in the ancient Near East. Now, it's important to understand the nature of idolatry and the, these worship and practices in the ancient Near East, Okay. So one commentator, he describes it this way. He says, since the ancient Near Eastern gods were viewed as being present in idols that represented them, bowing down before such an image was considered an appropriate way of showing respect to the relevant god. So what he is saying is ancient Near Eastern worship viewed these idols as containing somewhat of the essence of that foreign deity, of that foreign god in the idol itself. And in a lot of ways, that idol contained some of the essence of that God, and it, cre it created kind of a pathway, a portal, a, a, a telephone line. It, it gave you access to that God, while the idol itself contained some of its essence in the idol. So ancient Near Easterners, they, they needed idols that they could touch, that they could have in their home, that they could Physically, physically bring uh, wherever they wanted to go. It was a tangible way to have access to that 
God. Now, if you were here last week, as we walked through the first commandment, God doesn't want anything, anything before him. He wants our wholehearted worship and devotion. And we don't run to foreign idols and anything those things may promise. You don't run to those. Don't do that. And then we kind of walked through this last week. I don't think that any of you are the type of people who are going to go home today and you're going to have a little wooden idol in your office or in your kitchen that you bow down to. That's not what we do. But what we do is we worship other things in the place of God, that we create idols out of created things in this life. Like you can have a career, which is a good thing that God has given us, but you can make it God by giving that career all of your attention, all of your devotion, all of your time, all of your energy, that you ride the highs and lows of that career, that your happiness is banked on what happens in that career. And that's idolatry. That's worshiping something in the place of God that is elevating something created to the, to the stage of creator and worshiping it. So, the second commandment includes this broad condemnation of worshiping anything, and for us, anything that we think gives us ultimately the good life, but that's not the only idea that's being conveyed here. That's not the only type of idol worship that's happening here. It's not merely addressing the worship of foreign idols. But it is taking that practice, this ancient Near Eastern practice of believing that the essence of your God is bound up in that graven image, bound up in that created idol, and applying that worship and practice to the Lord. Believing that you can worship the one true God through idols. That is the second type of idolatry that's being condemned in this second commandment. And it's where we're going to spend the most of our time today. Is believing that any created thing can represent God. And that we can bow down to it and worship it in the place of God. So, remember, the surrounding nations believed that that false God, that its essence was in the idol itself. And the people of God have been surrounded by the Egyptians and surrounding nations for centuries. This is commonplace practice to believe that your God could be represented, that you could make a grave in a created image, that you could carve an idol and it could contain your God and you could have access to your God. And God is saying, don't take that practice and apply it to me. But you are to worship me and me alone and you are to worship me rightly, not wrongly. The great I am, who we've seen throughout the book of Exodus, Yahweh. This wonderful, glorious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This wonderful, glorious God whose attributes are unsearchable. His beauty and His holiness and His goodness and His mercy and His love and His grace and everything that... We try to describe our indescribable God. Do not reduce our God down to a created substance. Do not believe that you can make anything in his image and bow down to it. Don't bring that practice into this land that I'm going to give to you. Don't do it. That is blasphemous. That is a blasphemous form of worship 
irreverently corrupting the name and the character of God by reducing him down to something that is not holy as he is holy. It is blasphemous. Now, that type of idol worship makes a whole lot more sense when you get down to Exodus 32, which we will get to, when you get to the story of how they worshipped a golden calf. So when you get to Exodus 32, Moses, we're going to see over the coming chapters, he's going to spend a lot of time receiving the law on Mount Sinai from God. And he's away for quite some time, so long that, uh, so long that the people are like, where is he? Where's Moses who brought us out? And they start panicking. And they start to, this is the man who's been telling us what we need to do. This is the man who's been representing God as the mediator. This is the man who's been like, what, what are we going to do? And they go to Aaron, the second command. And they're like, Aaron, you got to do something. We need to be able to worship God. And they come to Aaron, and Aaron fails. They, they, they've already had the second commandment. They already, they already have the second commandment. And Aaron says, all right, bring me gold. So he takes and collects their gold. The very, y'all, the very gold that God secured for them in the victory over Egypt. The gold that they took and, I mean, this, they took that gold that God gave them and they melt it down into a golden calf, into an idol. And in Exodus 32, it says, And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are, the, are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. You might read that and think, Okay, but they just think it's foreign gods that brought them out. But it gets more complicated because this is how Aaron responds. Verse 5, When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. This wasn't just worshiping foreign idols. No, no, no. This will be, this golden calf will be what represents our God. Taking the foreign, ancient, Near Eastern practices and bringing it amongst and into the people of God. And then this makes even more sense later when you get to Deuteronomy, which is the second ring of the law. This is when, right before they're going to enter into the promised land, they're looking back at this event. And Moses says this in Deuteronomy 4. He says, therefore, watch yourselves very carefully, since you saw no form on the day the Lord spoke to you out of Horeb, out of the midst of the fire. You couldn't see our God, and you panicked. Beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves. They needed a God that they could see, that they could touch, that they could bow down to, just like the surrounding nations. And they thought they were worshiping the one true God, but they were worshiping him wrongly. They worshiped him wrongly, and that is a heinous, evil, corrupted practice. You may think, oh, but they, they were trying. They're trying to worship God, they're figuring this out, but we, we don't understand how heinous and how evil and how wicked it is to do what they did. I mean, the, a small version of, of that that I, it doesn't even come close would be like if you, if you had a family where the parents were like elite and rich and had power and influence, and they somehow got access to a private viewing of the Mona Lisa. 
and they got a private viewing of the Mona Lisa, and their child was with them. And their child loved the Mona Lisa. And they said, I, I want to paint the Mona Lisa. And they let their, ch- their child take paint and finger paint all over the Mona Lisa. Just completely defacing it. The most priceless piece of Western art in history. Can you imagine the backlash? Can you imagine the stories across the world when people found out that a child defaced the Mona Lisa? I mean, it would be swift. It would be severe. And no matter how earnest that child was trying to honor that piece of priceless artwork, they've corrupted it and degraded it. And that comes nowhere even close to the attempt to reduce the glory of our God down to a created substance, to mimic or try to reduce him down to a created thing. It reveals that you have a degraded and diminished view of who God is. That you don't truly understand who God is. And if you have a diminished and degraded view, a corrupted view of God, then ultimately what follows that is all the other corrupt practices. And that's the nation of Israel. That they would bow down to idols, some of which they believed represented the one true God. And there were all types of rebellious practices that followed all the way up into sacrificing your own children by burning them alive, which happened in the history of Israel. Because they believed they could reduce God down to something created and bow down to it. And what this shows is because of this diminished worship of God, it reveals they have a diminished, corrupted view of God. And ultimately, if you have a corrupted view of who God is, then you'll have corrupted obedience. Another way of saying that is how we worship reveals whom we worship. That how we worship ultimately reveals whom we worship. You may believe that you are earnestly worshiping God by bowing down to this graven image. But don't confuse earnestness with having the right heart and understanding of who God is. It is a diminished view of God, and it reveals that you don't understand who God is in the first place. That you could reduce the glory of God down to a created thing means that you don't actually truly know him. The people don't truly actually know who their God is. And there is this second commandment that is meant to so strictly guard that. That not only are you to not have no, you're, you're to have no other gods before the one true God. And you're to worship him alone. You are to worship him rightly. Because how we worship ultimately reveals whom we worship. Now, the people of God need to receive this, need to walk in this, need to be corrected by this. This gets a little complicated for us as Christians. How do Christians obey the second commandment when the invisible God took on flesh and dwelt among us? So that created a uniquely a unique problem for Christians. What do we do with the second commandment? Now that the God came in the flesh and walked among us, that we, he was an embodied person and now sits at the right hand of God the Father in his resurrected body. That created a problem for Christians for the last 2,000 years as we've sought to still obey the second commandment when it comes to specifically images of Jesus. Around the 4th and 5th century, they began to uh, incorporate pictures of Jesus as a part of worship, which 
Ended up in a very big debate around the 7th century between the Eastern and Western churches of like, what do we do with this? Is it okay to have pictures in worship? And they kind of just came to a little bit of a stalemate. It was like, they, you can have them, but don't, we don't need to worship them. And then this practice started to continue and get corrupted in the Western church and the Catholic church. And they began to use images of Jesus for worship. I mean, even to this day, like I, I went to the Holy Land years ago, and there's certain relics and, and, and pictures and, all, and, and places like where Jesus, was, where, his, uh, where this cross was, that, that you see some Catholics, it's what, what they're doing is they're worshiping. They want to just, they're, they're bowing down and trying to grab it to gain access to. It's, it's worship. And this corrupted worship continued all the way into the Reformation. And the Reformers saw this around the 15th and 16th century and were like, no. They, they didn't want to see no, no images of Jesus. We don't want you to come anywhere close to violating the second commandment. And when you get to one of the more foundational teachings and Protestantism, the Heidelberg Catechism, which catechisms are just a teaching style of question and answer. Ask the question, here's the answer. We actually have a, it's called the New City Catechism, which is out there by the bookshelf, in the spiritual formation bookshelf, that you can take, and it has all kinds of helpful questions and answers to be able to learn more about our faith. But in the Heidelberg Catechism, hundreds of years ago, they said, question, what does God require in the second commandment? Answer, that we in no way make any image of God, nor worship him in any other way that he has commanded us in his word. And Protestants have largely been very hesitant about having pictures of Jesus historically up until today. And what do you do today, right? There's storybook Bibles. There's, there's film. The Jesus film came along in the 70s. The Passion of the Christ came along in the 2000s and depicted Jesus now we have The Chosen, which is a TV show, which is really well done. Like, there's a lot of Christian film and stuff that's horrible. It's just really bad. But it's actually well done. It's well directed. It's well written. It's well acted. What do you do with that? And I know that some of y'all might hear that and just go, oh, my goodness, this feels so, like, tedious and nitpicky and almost pharisaical. Like, we're just always splitting hairs here. And I would just say, don't roll your eyes. It's something that the church has earnestly sought to obey the second commandment for 2,000 years and understanding this. So, what do you do with stuff like that? Now, I think the, the issue is not with the images of Jesus, the second member of the Trinity. I don't think the, the issue is necessarily with the image of Christ. I've pushed back a little bit, sounds bad, but I've pushed back a little bit on the Heidelberg Catechism. Because Jesus was embodied. He's still embodied as the resurrected Savior. So he, he imaged, the invisible God imaged himself. So I mean, I think there's major problems if you try to represent the Father, God the Father, God the Holy Spirit. But the second member of the Trinity, Christ, because he was embodied and he was a person, I don't think the pictures are the problem. I think how you approach those pictures is ultimately the problem. And using any picture of Jesus to worship is highly, highly problematic and a violation of this second commandment. So I think the chosen is fine. As long as you view it as entertainment, give a general picture of the gospel story, that's fine. But the chosen doesn't bring God into your living room. Jonathan Rumi, who's the actor that plays Jesus, he's not Jesus. So the chosen doesn't bring God into your living room. When you're doing a storybook Bible with your children, it's good to be mindful of what you're doing. 
I ha- we have storybook Bibles, and I love them. But I really try to focus, especially when it comes to pictures of Jesus, try to focus on the story and then help them see that this is, this is not literally Jesus. This is just someone who's drawing Jesus. We're certainly not going to have the storybook Bible out, look at it and say, children, let's pray. Like, not doing that. And I think it's helpful to think through this. I think even when uh, I, I've watched The Chosen, I think it's actually really well done. There have been times where I'll read one of the stories from the Gospels, and then I'm picturing stuff from that show. And I'm like, no, 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 I'm not, I'm not doing that. In my worship of God, in my, my quiet time before Him, I don't want to be picturing things. I want the Word of God to be what's molding and shaping my worship. So, again, some might say that's nitpicky, but I think it matters in seeing how to apply the second commandment. Because how we worship reveals whom we worship. That matters. I think that's a, that's a clearly taught principle that's established here in the second commandment and is pulled through the rest of the Old Testament. Like the rest of the Old Testament law is going to be, there are going to be moments where they're teaching, this is how you're supposed to worship. You don't worship this way in the second commandment, but here's how you are to rightfully worship God. That gets pulled into the New Testament where we're going to see teachings of how you're to rightfully worship God. God through hymns and psalms and spiritual songs and reading scripture and and teaching that all of that matters and as a principle this is a down the line application okay that I'm that I'm taking us to so not the main point here but but how we worship matters because it reveals who we worship that's why when we worship on Sundays as the corporate church together we think about these kind of things that Matt who oversees our our, our worship gatherings is, is thinking through the setting and lighting and songs and what we, what we sing on Sunday, that, that, that matters. Because, I mean, there, there are, I mean, just, there are some churches that, that are so stale and so cold and so lifeless, they can sing how great thou art. And they can sing, when Christ shall come with shout of acclamation, take me home and joy shall fill my and it's just lifeless and it's like do you realize what you're singing and how wonderful that truth is about Christ coming to take us home and that's highly problematic if your worship is going to show who we're actually worshiping and on the farther end of the spectrum you've got churches that it's just about the emotional high of worship and it's just emotional manipulation it's just, it's hype culture on steroids. Like, I remember when I, the last church I was a part of, we were hiring a worship pastor. And we were interviewing some guys. This guy came in from Texas. And this guy was currently, at the time, he was leading worship in Texas, being flown out to a megachurch in Colorado. And he wanted to get out of that culture because they were, it was so produced and manipulative that, that they were in his in-ear monitor telling him when to raise his hand in worship. And it's just... So, like I said, not the main point of the passage, but that principle matters. And it comes out of the second commandment and flows through the rest of the scriptures. How we worship reveals whom we worship. We are to worship the one true God and we are to worship him rightly. As we seek to obey the second commandment, just as the Israelites were called to do. Now, they receive this second commandment. Don't, corp- don't incorporate these ancient Near Eastern pagan practices and worship of me. And then what's listed are consequences and rewards for doing so. So, verse 5. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For 
I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. There are both consequences and rewards for obeying or disobeying this second commandment. Now the consequences have to do with your children and your grandchildren and their children. And a bad reading of this, a bad reading of the second commandment is that children are punished for their parents' sins. And that's not what the second commandment is teaching. Ezekiel 18, chapter, uh, chapter 18, verse 20, helpfully frames this. It says, the soul whose sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. Children are not punished for their parents' sins. That's not what the second commandment is teaching. However, the parents' sins can certainly affect their children. I love how John Piper explains this. He says that just because you get the flu does not automatically mean that your child is going to get the flu and start showing symptoms. But don't be mistaken that if you get the flu, there's a greater chance that your child will also get the flu. So if you have a father who is raising his kids and he shows up to worship every Sunday, suit and tie, presenting the best this is, we're a Christian family, but at home, he's an alcoholic, and he's abusive, and he's cruel, and he belittles his children. Just because the father sins doesn't mean the kids will be punished for it. But don't be mistaken that if that's their view of what it means to be a Christian, and that's their view of God, there's a chance they're absolutely going to hate God, and they're going to reject him. So absolutely, parents have an impact on their, their children. And he's trying to help them see that if you bow down to idols, if you do this, your children and your grandchildren and their children will continue the same practice of bowing down to idols. Don't do it. We sometimes forget that the commandments are not just written to us as individuals. They're written to the nation of Israel as well. And that is the history of Israel, that when they bow down to idols, what happens? Their children do and their grandchildren do. You see that with the kings of Israel. There are kings that they start bowing down to idols and then their son and then their son. And then you see kings who are righteous. David and Josiah. And when they are worshiping the God of the universe rightly, then the thousands and thousands are also worshiping the God of the universe rightly. So that's what's happening here. There's consequences and the rewards. And one more quick, this is another implication this teaching, and this is for kids in the room. So if you're a kid, perk up for a second, listen. In the same way that you're not punished for your parents' sins, you also don't ride the coattails of your parents' faith. You don't inherit their faith. You have to have your own personal faith. You have to personally decide to follow Jesus and walk with him. For all of your days. So some of you have got some godly faithful parents. But you're just not going to pick up on their faith. 
You've got to own this yourself. So they need to understand this, how this generational implications for obeying and disobeying the second commandment. But they also needed to understand why. Why is the second commandment such a big deal? Why does this matter so much? And it's right there embedded in the middle of it. Verse 5, you shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. It's because our God is a jealous God who has jealous love for his people. Jealousy can sometimes be thought of in negative ways, and it certainly can be used in negative ways, but it also can be used in wonderful ways. When I was in college, my wife and I, we were best friends, best friends throughout college. But I had a rule about not dating best friends because I dated my best friend in high school and it ended poorly. We were no longer friends. So I had this rule as I don't date best friends, so I friends owned her. And then junior year came around, and I was like, what am I doing? She's great. I, like, I, I, it finally, like, fall, like winter, winter break, it clicked. It just was like, I, I, what am I doing? I want to be with her. And about the time I decided that I wanted to be with her, I found out that she was going on dates with this other guy. <laughs> and what welled up in me was jealous love. Like, I, I was jealous for her attention for her affection and for her and she was going on dates with this guy they weren't official yet but she was going on dates with this guy who by the way was nothing like me he played left he was a starting left tackle for coastal carolina he was six foot four three bills i mean we could not be any different i was like what is happening but i was like they ain't official yet this is going on a few dates so I was making my intentions clear. I was, I was, I, she saw very quickly that I was, this was no longer just friendship, that I was interested in her. Now, I don't want to spoil the rest of the story, but as <laughs> soon as she found out that I liked her, he's like, bye. <laughs> that guy was gone. And to this day, if I saw her walking down the street holding another man's hand, what would well up in me is jealous love because I have a jealous love for her. I want her attention. I want her affection. I want her. And the God of the universe, even more so, is jealous for us. Don't miss that. He wants our attention. He wants our affection. He wants you. God is jealous for you. That is why the language of idolatry throughout the rest of the Old Testament is of spiritual adultery. That's why the language is playing the harlot after foreign gods, whoring after other gods. That language is intentional for a reason because God has a fierce and jealous love for his people. And it's wonderful. It's wonderful. And people misunderstand that. They criticize the jealousy of God. Oprah said the reason she rejected the God of the Bible is because the Bible says that God is a jealous God. And she thought that was petty and small. And it's just, you missed it. You completely misunderstand the jealousy of our God. Our God isn't jealous for us because he needs us. Our God eternally has existed as self-sufficient. He doesn't need anybody. 
before creation even existed, before time existed, which this, is break, this breaks the brain, but in what's called eternity past, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit eternally existed in perfect harmony, had no need of creation, had no need of people, but God made the universe and He made people. He didn't need us, but He desires us. He wants us. He is jealous for us. And his jealousy is so wonderfully displayed that when his creation rejected him and chased after other idols and worshipped other things in the place of God, that he would not let that stand. And he came for us. And that he obeyed the, he took on flesh and dwelt among us and Jesus obeyed the Old Testament law perfectly. And that he went to the cross for us to have his blood shed for our idolatrous pursuit of everything else and he died for us, and he rose for us so that we could walk in the newness of life that experiences the wonder and the joy of a God who is jealous for his people. So that we could experience his jealousy for us now into eternity. That is how jealous and how wonderful our God is. So the first and second commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, and you will worship me rightly. That is a good gift. That is, those are wonderful commandments. Because it calls us to see the one true God who is completely in love with us, completely jealous for us. It allows us to see him for who he is so that we can love him with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all our might. And we would enjoy him forever. The band's going to come up. And we get to worship, we get to sing to our jealous, wonderful God. We get to behold Him for who He is. But there are probably some of us that don't see that and don't fully understand that. And some of us, all we can see is our sin and our brokenness. And we think, how in the world could God possibly want me? Even with the first and second commandment, we can see all the other things that we worship in the place of God. How could this God still want me? He loves us because of his great love and his great mercy. He loves us because he is jealous for us because of what Jesus did for us. And it's based completely on the work of Christ and Christ alone. So yeah, we are unworthy. On our own, we're unworthy to worship our God and to behold Him. But through Christ and what He has done for us, we get to worship our God. And there may be some of you here that have never truly believed this or never surrendered to this God who is jealous. And I want you to see how wonderful the jealousy of God is. I want you to see how wonderful it is to have no other gods before Him but to be so deeply in love with Him. And my hope is that you would surrender to this God because he's worthy. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us behold you now in worship. We are are idolaters. We do chase after other things. And those things leave us empty and unsatisfied and broken and weary. And that you get to 
pick up our heads and help us see the cross and the empty tomb. And that we get to behold you, our jealous and wonderful God. So Lord, help us worship. And if there's anyone here that has not understood, that has not believed, that does not know you, God, may you absolutely bend their hearts to believe and to behold in you as our one true God so that we can worship you and worship you rightly. In Jesus' name, amen.